Okay, well, if you're um, here for the first time, we are looking at uh, Peter's first letter. Peter, one of the original apostles, and it was a letter he wrote to help Christians live in a pagan culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to them. And in today's passage, you get a bit of a taste of that. Okay, look at verse 12. When they speak against you as evildoers. I mean, um, um, uh, imagine that, you know, them saying to them, you Christians, you're not just different. And what you believe is not just wrong, it's hateful, it's harmful, it's evil. And of course, Peter's not exaggerating, is he? You know, last week, uh, we saw how Tacitus, the Roman historian, described Christians as haters of humanity. While Suetonius and Pliny the Younger, they described, and Pliny the Younger became the governor of the area where uh, Peter is writing to, he described Christians, they described Christians as followers of a mischievous and depraved superstition. superstition. Now, I don't know if you saw, have been following in the uh, press this week, but following the resignation of the First Minister of Scotland, one of the contenders to replace her is a committed Christian. And it looks like no one doubts her abilities. What she is being attacked for is her faith. And in particular, her views and her beliefs concerning marriage and sexuality, which are traditional Christian views. And as one professor of politics put it, uh, talking about her, he said someone with beliefs like hers would be difficult to swallow. We can't have someone like that, effectively. We can't have someone like that who believes stuff like that, having positions of power or authority, or at least not the preeminent one. Now, that kind of criticism is mild in comparison to what Peter's friends were beginning to experience and went on to experience. But when you do face that kind of opposition and hostility, what do you do? How are you supposed to respond to it? I mean, one response is to hide, isn't it? You know, to hide your, your views, to, um, to privatise your faith, to not let your, your faith and your beliefs uh, be spoken about in the, uh, in the, um, in the public square. And that is certainly what the secular world, our, our, our secular culture, wants you to do if you're a Christian, is to keep your faith private. The irony, of course, of that is that the reason they want you to do that and privatise your faith and keep your faith out of the public square is so that their faith, their beliefs, their opinions can fill the public square. But there's another response to hiding. And that is to go on the attack. That in the face of their hostility, you become increasingly hostile to them. And we fight fire with fire, and you become more angry, more strident. And in certain sectors of the church, the idea that Christians should be taking the battle to those who we think are evildoers, that has gained traction. But are they right? Whereas to help Christians wrestle with exactly those kind of dilemmas that Peter is writing this letter. And his response, interestingly, is neither withdrawal nor war. 
It's a call to beauty. It's a call to live such lives of beauty that it wins your enemies over. But before he gets there, he begins by reminding them and us who they, if you're a Christian, who you are, your identity. We're going to look at four things, your identity, your life, your attitude, and your reason. Okay, first one then, your identity. Look at verse 11. Beloved. Peter's saying, guys, I love you. But more importantly, so does God. Others may be calling you evildoers, but that's not what God calls you. He says, I love you. You are my beloved. That's who you are. But then he goes on, verse 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now, as some of you know, a great tragedy has befallen our family. And two of our daughters have married Germans. <laughs> and, and now Katie, our youngest, actually lives in Germany. And Sue and I uh, visited her and Clements, my son-in-law, um, uh, last weekend. And for 24 hours, there we were, Sue and me, we were living in Germany. But did that make us Germans? You know, we might, we might eat the same food as Germans, Wurst. We might drink the same beer as Germans. But our country, our country, was across the border. And we would get back there soon enough, fortunately. And, and Peter is saying, hey, guys, as you live in this pagan culture, remember you're a foreigner. This isn't your home country. You are a temporary resident. This isn't your home country. Your citizenship has changed. Now you are citizens of another city. A few weeks back, Sue... Hannah and I, we hiked up to a, uh, one of those refuges in the Jura in the uh, middle of nowhere. And we thought we were going to, deserted place, we thought we were going to have the place to ourselves. But as we arrived, this party of five elderly Swiss local men arrived at the same time. And we had a, a, a wonderful lunch with them and sat and chatted to them. But when they discovered that we were British, which didn't take them long, okay, one of them asked me, sort of looked me in the eye and asked me accusingly, did you vote for Brexit? <laughs> I think he thought I was personally responsible uh, for that. And I said, no, you know, I didn't, I didn't vote in the, uh, in, in, in the vote. You know, I don't live there any, anymore. It's not for me to vote. But then I added, but I do now have Swiss nationality. And I think thought he looked at me with disbelief. You know, I, I, you know, I, I do now have Swiss nationality, so I get to vote here in our elections every week. Okay, which if you're Swiss, you know what that is like. And uh, Peter's point is, your nationality, your identity, your citizenship has changed. So let that fact change your life. Let it change your values. Let it change your priorities. Let it change the way you live. Verse 16, live as people who are free, living as servants of God. Okay, remember back in chapter 1, verse 18, where Peter says, you were ransomed. Your freedom, 
You're free and your freedom has been bought. The price to deliver you from out of the power of sin has been paid and paid at infinite cost. Verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ. You're free. And yet Peter says, you're also a servant. In fact, you're a bondservant. You're a slave of God. Okay, how do you reconcile those two? I mean, is that a total contradiction? How, you know, how can you be both free and a slave? That's a total contradiction, isn't it? And the reason we think like that is that we tend to view freedom as freedom from something. I mean, wars of independence are fought to free people from other people, typically the British. Okay, feminism wants freedom for women from husband, children, and home, freedom from the patriarchy. The civil rights movement wants freedom from racial oppression. And the young guy who refuses to settle down, he wants freedom from commitment. It's always freedom from something. But the Bible says, yeah, but that's only half the story. Because whether you acknowledge it or not, something is always going to be your master. Something is going to be controlling the way you see and live life. It could be some grand political idea, or it could be something as basic as wanting everybody to like you. Whatever it is, something is going to be pulling the strings of your heart. And at the most basic level, the Bible says that is either going to be God or something that replaces God. Even if that something is your determination not to be controlled, not to be constrained, not to submit, not to have other people telling you what to do. It's that that is controlling you. But now Peter says, when you become a Christian, you change masters. Christ has bought you and he owns you. And others may be calling you evildoers, but what you really are is beloved and free and a servant of God living in a culture that is not your own. Let that identity change the way you live and especially in this moment in history for them maybe for us the way you respond to pressure and hostility second point then your life your identity your life now when your beliefs are being attacked or you are being seen as a threat by society where might you be tempted to think the battle lies Who's the enemy? Where should you first direct your fire? You see, when you're living in a culture as they were, which, and as we are, which is awash with paganism, awash with sexual immorality, and people are turning on you then or now, it is understandable to think they're the enemy. And yet that's not how Peter sees it. What he says is that when hostility is growing, the first battle that demands your attention is your own heart. Verse 11. 
Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Now, despite what you might be thinking, Peter has got more than sex in mind. Okay, he's got wrong passions. He's got right passions which we seek to fulfill in wrong ways. And he's got things we are passionate about, good things that we want, but we want them too much so they become controlling over us. He's got those in mind. He's got wrong passions, good passions which we seek to fulfill in wrong ways, and over-desiring of good things in mind. Why? Why address this first? Why address what is going on in our hearts before doing battle with wrong philosophies of life? Because when you are feeling under pressure for your faith, or frankly just plain stressed by life, or when people are saying unkind or untrue things about you, the desires of the flesh, like that desire to vindicate yourself, or that desire to fight back and get even, or the desire, to, the desire for intimacy, or for comfort, something to numb the pain, the desire for pleasure, or the desire, the, the, the desire to regain control or maintain the good opinion of others and have people think nice things about you. When you're under pressure, all of those things can seem all the more enticing and your resistance to them all the less. As they tell you, Hey, look, you're being attacked and you're stressed and you're suffering for doing what's right. But this will make you feel better. This will help you feel like you are getting even. This will sort you out. This will numb your pain or this will sort them out. But ultimately, Peter says, those desires that offer you life bring death. They offer you peace, but they bring more war. So abstain from them, Peter says. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So as Tom Schreiner, Tom Schreiner is a professor of New Testament at Southern Baptist Seminary, he says, so Peter does not summon believers to a verbal campaign of self-defence. Instead, he enjoins them to pursue virtue and goodness. In other words, Peter says, hey, you're being accused of evil. So show them the opposite. By the quality of your life, show them how Christ transforms your life. Okay, but did you notice how Peter describes their conduct? Verse 12 again, it is among the Gentiles, among your pagan friends, among your pagan colleagues, among your neighbours. So it's, it's not war against them, but neither is it withdrawal from them, withdrawal from the public square. In response to hostility, the answer is not to privatise your faith. It's not to go quiet. It is to live such good lives in front of them that they take notice. You see, when Peter says, so they may see your good deeds, he uses a word for good that doesn't just mean good. It's the word kalos. And it also has this sense of what is beautiful. 
He's saying, he's talking about a life that has got a rightness about it, a, a goodness about it, a nobility about it that is just plain attractive, that's beautiful, that your friend or your neighbor look at and go, do you know, I wish I had his peace. I, I, I wish I spoke about, I wish my husband spoke about me the way you speak about uh, your wife. You know, I, I, I wish I had your joy. It's beautiful. And as you live like that, in the words of Ed Clowney, Ed Clowney was president of um, Reformed Theological Seminary. He said, as you live like that, your life will be a witness to them or a testimony against them. Because when Peter says, so they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, does he mean by that the day of judgment? Or the day when God visits your friend or your neighbor or your colleague and opens their heart to believe in Jesus? And the answer is probably both. Because that phrase in, is used in the, on the day of visitation. The day of visitation is used in the Old Testament for God coming in judgment but it can also be used for God coming in blessing. So whether it, is, whether it is on the day of judgment and those who don't believe will have to admit that all along you really were doing God's good works, or whether it is those people who are not yet Christians who come to faith in Christ through your good example, through seeing something in you that is deeply attractive, either way, God will be glorified through you. Okay, which all sounds great, doesn't it? But what does a life like that look like? What does that kind of beautiful life look like? Well, Peter tells us one part of it, and it may surprise you, okay, because these good works that are beautiful is not helping old ladies across the road. Though if you see one needing help across the road, do it. Interestingly, what he says is it is submitting yourself to authority. Third point then, your attitude, your identity, your life, and your attitude as you live life. Now, we live at a time when attitude, how you think and how you speak about others, dominates the public square. Okay, this week, one, uh, one UK politician spoke of his loathing, okay, if you don't know that word, sort of hatred, disgust of a member of an opposite political party, not his loathing of his politics or his policies, but his loathing of the man himself. And that is just a snapshot of how right and left despise each other and how polarization has become endemic in our societies. What I want you to think about is what passions of the flesh, what desires or over-desires might be driving that level of animosity? And I ask that because in the next section of this letter, Peter addresses areas where you might begin to experience conflict as hostility grows. And we're going to go through all of these in the weeks to come. So we have got some fun weeks ahead of us, okay? It is in the workplace, slaves submit to masters. It's in marriages and families, wives submit to husbands. It's in churches, submit to your elders. And his repeated phrase is, be subject to, submit to. But he starts 
with politics and submission to civil authorities. Verses 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. So you are a free citizen of another king and another country. You're a free citizen, but that doesn't mean you get to live however you want. Verse 16 again, we live as servants of God. And that means, Peter says, we will submit to the authorities that our king has put in place. They're not our king. But because God is our king, our disposition is going to be to obey them and to serve them because he has put them there. It's why Calvin said that the Christian life is a free servitude and a serving freedom. It is why Martin Luther said that these two things are true, that a Christian is the most free Lord of all and subject to none, but at the same time, a Christian is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. Okay, how do you respond to that? You know, how do you respond when you hear that? I mean, do you, if you're anything like me, do you sense just a bit of resistance welling up inside you? Submit to godless government? No way. Or maybe you don't just feel that resistance. Maybe you do it like you break the speed limit. Okay, not that any of us ever break the speed limit, do we? You know, I, I know there are no speed cameras on that stretch of road, and who are they to tell me how to drive? Or it's, you know, season of doing our tax returns here in Switzerland, and maybe you do your tax return in a way that deep down, you know deep down falls on the wrong side of honest. So why... Instead of a disposition to submit, do we sometimes feel or do an attitude of resistance to submission to these secular authorities? I want to give you three reasons. There may be more. I want to give you three. Firstly, there is a sense in which civil authorities imposing laws and penalties for breaking laws, there's a sense in which that is unnatural. Okay, they weren't a part of Eden. Now there was, the, I mean, they didn't exist before the fall. Structure and authority did, but not human authority specifically addressing human law-breaking. That only became necessary after the fall as part of God's common grace to keep sin in check. As Peter says in verse 14, their role is to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So when you think all of these rules, all of these fines, all of this red tape, life shouldn't be like this. You're right. Life shouldn't be like this. But what you are longing for is God's kingdom. And that won't be fully here. We won't get to experience the goodness of that until Jesus returns. So that's one reason. Okay, but I suspect that's not the major reason we feel resistance rising in front of it, in, inside of us. I think there's a more common reason, and that is that, hey, let's be honest, we just don't like people telling us what to do. 
We want to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. The problem is that was the reason for the fall in the first place. It's why Peter starts by addressing these issues of the passions of the flesh, because one of those passions is pride. And pride, if you hadn't noticed, is endemic in our culture, whether on the left or on the right. I want to be my own emperor. I want to be my own governor. I'm my own authority. No one gets to tell me how I live my life. I'm free. And Peter is saying, no, you're not. You're enslaved. You are enslaved by your pride, by your desire for control, from, from your desire for control, your desire for liberty from others, and by your passion for autonomy. And as he puts it in verse 16, when we react like that, the danger is that we are using our freedom as a cover up for evil. Instead, when Christ sets you free, Peter says, you become a servant of God. Now he's your master. And as you serve him, you cultivate an attitude of submission to those he has placed in authority. Okay, but there's a third reason that we might feel resistance rising. And that is you see these authorities inverting their God-given responsibility. And instead of punishing evil and praising good, they punish the good and praise the evil. And are we really supposed to submit to that? But of course, Peter's not naive to that, is he? I mean, he knew better than any of us the corruption of power and of paganism in power in the Roman state. And he had watched as crowds of people flocked to Jesus in the hope and the expectation that Jesus would overthrow that power, only to see those crowds disappear when it became clear Jesus wouldn't do that. And he had seen Jesus crucified under a Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, the same kind of governors he tells his friends here to submit to. And when Peter wrote this, the emperor was Nero, who was hardly a paragon of virtue. And everyone knew that. He was hardly the promoter of democratic liberties. So how are you supposed to submit to people like that? Well, in danger of ending up with a 29-point sermon, I want to give you three ways you can submit. Firstly, we submit as an act of worship. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So we submit to human institutions like governments because the Lord is our king, not them. So we obey the speed limits and we do it as worship. We pay our taxes in full and we do it as worship. We follow the regulations on where we can park and how late we can party as worship. Because to submit to them is not the same as to worship them. You see, when Peter says be subject to every human institution, the word translated institution is the word for creature. So the emperor and governors and presidents and prime ministers 
are creatures. They're not the creator. And that means that while human authorities may have God-given authority, they do not have ultimate authority. And so as Wayne Grudem writes, we are to submit to them and we do submit to them up to the point they command us to sin or to worship them, which of course is what eventually happened for these guys. But of course, Christians, Christians may not always agree when that line is crossed, which is probably why Peter urges them in verse 17 to love the brotherhood, love the brotherhood. Love your brothers and sisters. Because when your community is facing pressure externally, it is easy for cracks to begin to appear internally and to drive wedges into those cracks. Instead, Peter says, hey, cement those cracks with love. Okay, so firstly, we submit to them as worship. Secondly, we submit to them by showing honor. Look at verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. Okay, so as Christians, we are going to have an attitude of honouring everyone, including emperors and kings and presidents and prime ministers and politicians. Okay, great, you might say, but what does that mean? What does it mean to honour them? Okay, firstly, what it doesn't mean. Okay, it doesn't mean you have to love what they love or agree with what they do. We're to love the brotherhood, Peter says, but we're to honour the emperor. And to honour doesn't mean that you submit to them out of slavish fear. Fear God, Peter says, and honour the emperor. And the time might come when to obey God will mean you disobey them, as happened to Peter's friend. And the, to Peter's friends and the command to worship the emperor. But even then, Peter says... Even then, you still honour them. Okay, but what is, what does, if that's what it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you have to love what they love or to fear them, slavish fear. What does it mean? Well, look again at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. And that word there, supreme, is the same word that Paul uses in Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. What does it mean to submit to emperors and presidents and prime ministers and officials? It is to think of them as more significant than ourselves. And as we do that, we want to do them good. We want to bless them. We want to see them prosper in God's ways. And we do that because whatever their views, they are still image bearers of God. And we honor that by treating them like that. And we honour them because of the roles entrusted to them. We honour them and we honour the office. And again, as Tom Schreiner said, even the most oppressive still serve some role in keeping evil in check and preventing a collapse into total anarchy. Okay, so we submit to them as worship. We submit to them by honouring them. But thirdly, we submit to them 
as exiles. I urge you, Peter says, verse 11, as exiles to be subject, verse 13. And when Peter is thinking exiles submitting to pagan authorities, he has almost certainly got Israel in exile in Babylon in mind. And God's word to those exiles through the prophet Jeremiah to seek the welfare of the city where God has placed you. How do you submit? As an exile, Peter says, as men like Daniel and his friends did, by serving and seeking the good of the city where God has placed you. Verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Okay, so our civil obedience, not disobedience, our civil obedience is one means of silencing the talk of those who frankly don't know what they're talking about. And even if they do punish the good, we still do the good, and we still seek the good. And that, according to Paul, as we were looking at in class this morning, is one way of overcoming evil. Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 31, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But what immediately follows that? Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So how do you work to see evil overcome? By the quality of your life. By good works. And your life and your good works are going to have a beauty and attractiveness about them. And by a disposition to submit to and honour those whom God has appointed. Okay, but why? Why should you want that? Because I suspect some of you don't. You're just our flesh being our flesh. Okay, why should you want that to be your disposition? And why should you want to abstain from the passions of the flesh when, frankly, it would be easier to go for comfort or to indulge yourself or to take them out? Last point, then. Your reason. I want to give you two. Firstly, because we desire something, if, if you are a Christian, we desire something more than the desires of the flesh. The novelist Flannery O'Connor wrote, always you renounce a lesser good for a greater. That's how you renounce a lesser good, because you're going for something greater. And more than our comfort, more than our proving ourselves right, more than our personal vindication, we want, as Peter says in verse 12, to see God glorified. Glorified by those who aren't Christians becoming Christians because they see something in us that's attractive. We don't do that for our glory. We do it so that it abounds to his glory. Now, is that just naive, that that might actually happen? And the answer is no, it happened. It is that that won the Roman Empire for Christ. That's what destroyed the gods. Because people began to notice, hang on a minute, we're killing the Christians. Killing the Christians? But who are our best citizens? Who feeds the poor? 
Who stays in the city when the plague hits to care for the dying? Who picks up and adopts the babies that we abandon? It's them. Why are we killing them? It was the beauty of their lives. Listen, it is your life that makes the claims of your faith plausible. And as it does, it brings glory to God. And if you're a Christian, you want that. But secondly, because Christ did it for you. You see, when Paul talks in Philippians 2 of counting others more significant than yourself, the reason he gives to do that is that that is how Christ considered us. And our king humbled himself. He humbled himself. And he became subject. And he submitted to the authority and the injustice of Pilate. As he said to him, You would have no authority over me if it wasn't given you from above. And he didn't lash him with his tongue. He took the lash on his back. And he didn't grasp for the sword. He took the nails and he took them for us. And instead of pouring down judgment on them, our judgment was poured upon him. And he honored us by counting our lives worthy of saving when we were evildoers. Guys, let the way he treated you transform the way you treat others, even and especially those who oppose you. Let's pray.